0: Mark chapter 9, verse 30 through 37. I'll pray and then we'll get stuck in. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him, And they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down, and he called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we want to come before your word. And Lord, we want to ask you for grace. Lord, we need need your grace to hear it. We need your grace to understand it. Lord, we need your grace to be changed by it. Lord, give us a vision of what it means to follow you this morning. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Roy Masters from the Sydney Morning Herald writes the following. He writes, He was the most gifted and unforgettable athlete of our time. The greatest, or the Louisville lip when we first knew him, inspired the era of globally televised multi million dollar fights. Yet no stage was ever large enough for his talents and charisma. Professional boxing badly missed its locomotive when Muhammad Ali retired. He was the only one who could pull the train. Now, most of his generation will miss and mourn him, dead at 74 due to septic shock after battling uh, Parkinson's disease for more than 30 years. Ali came to represent a new kind of athlete, someone who created his own style in defiance of the traditions of the past. Lib, handsome, and unpredictable, he was perfectly suited to television, and he became a fixture on talk shows as well as sports programs. He often spoke in rhyme, using it to belittle his opponents and embellish his own abilities. This is the legend of Cassius Clay, the most beautiful fighter in the world today, he said before his 1964 title bout. The brass young boxer is something to see, and the heavyweight championship is his destiny. After winning the title fight, Ali went on to famously say, I knew I had him in the first round. I want everyone to bear witness. I am the greatest. I'm the greatest thing that ever lived. I don't have a mark on my face and I upset Sonny Liston and I just turned 22 years old. I must be the greatest. I showed the world. I shook up the world. I'm the king of the world. You must listen to me. I am the greatest. I can't be beat. Well, friends, there can be no question that Muhammad Ali was truly one of the greatest athletes of all time. Yet what is true greatness, biblically defined? What does it mean to be truly great? You know, when we think of uh, greatness, we usually think of success. We think of people that are successful. We think of athletes like Usain Bolt or Michael Phelps or Jason Day. We think of famous leaders like Winston Churchill or Nelson Mandela or Mahatma Gandhi. We think of celebrities like Keith Urban or Russell Crowe or Hugh Jackman or career success like Ruslan Kogan or Rupert Murdoch or Harry Triggerboff. We even think of ministry success like Rick Warren or Brian and Bobby Houston or John Piper and Tim Keller. Yet is this true greatness according to the Bible? What is true greatness biblically defined? You know, there's no question that all these people have made great achievements. They've been successful. But does that make them great in God's eyes? What makes a person truly great? Well, this message I've entitled, A Lesson on True Greatness. And I've really got three points that we find in this text. Three stages, in fact, of this text But one point that really I want us and I believe the Lord wants us to see this morning and that is this, that true greatness is found in the self-sacrificing example of Jesus Christ. That's where we find true greatness. True greatness is not found or found actually in gifts, it's found in an example, it's found in the example, the self-sacrificing example of Jesus Christ. Well, let's begin with our first point this morning, and that is the great master, the great master. Because to truly understand greatness, we don't need to look any further, do we, than our great master, Jesus Christ. You know, at the beginning of John's gospel, he says that Jesus is the divine word become flesh. It's God incarnate for us. You know, at the beginning of Colossians, uh, Paul writes, he's the image of the invisible God. And so it makes sense for us that to be truly great is to be like God, to follow his example. And so that's where we're going to begin this morning. You know, just by way of uh, context uh, the last couple of weeks we've seen some fantastic messages from Riley and from Patrick. Uh, we've seen that Jesus, you know, having revealed his glory to the inner three, Peter, James and John, uh, probably on Mount Hebron, um, has gone on to, to come down off the mountain and found a great crowd uh, embroiled in this argument over an attempt to heal a demon-possessed child. And the scribes are saying one way and the disciples are saying another way. And the father who just wants his son healed, he, he comes down and, and, and kneels at Jesus' feet and he says, Lord, if you're able to, can you heal my child? And, and, and Jesus is incredulous at this. He's like, if I'm able, all things are possible for the one who believes. And then we have this, this beautiful display of faith as this man says, I believe, help me in my unbelief. And Jesus goes on and 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 heals this child. And the questions asked why couldn't the disciples heal? It's one that requires prayer. If they were trying to do it just in their own strength, they were they didn't even think to ask God for help. Well, having finished this amazing scene of faith, Jesus now moves on in his journey. And we read the following in, in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. At the beginning of our passage, let me let me read that verse again. It says, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. So Jesus moves on from Mount Hebron down through to Galilee, the center of his ministry previously, but he doesn't want anyone to know that he's there. Why? Well, we find the answer as we read the very next verse. It says this, Mark says, for he was teaching his disciples. Jesus doesn't want anyone to know that he's here in his hometown, the, the center of his ministry previously, because Jesus is after a quiet teaching moment. He wants to teach his disciples for the second time about his mission. You know, previously in chapter 8, uh, verse 31, you'd seen this catastrophic misunderstanding from Peter. Peter's response. As Jesus reveals his mission is to take him aside and rebuke him and and which is always going to be a bad idea if it's God incarnate that you're addressing. And the Saviour is is so ever patient. He he he's out to teach his disciples again. And at this point, you know, I just think we're we're so tempted at this point just to switch off. We're so tempted at this point just to brush over what Jesus is about to say in this moment i are so tempted to think, you know what, I've heard it all before. And if that's you, just like me, I think we need to ask God to help us repent. We need to ask God to soften our hearts and, and refill them for tender love for Christ and to hear afresh these words from Christ. You know, friends, This is the greatest of all predictions in Scripture. This is the heartbeat of God himself. This is the great master teaching, teaching his disciples and and teaching us afresh. Let's continue to read verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. When he is killed, after three days, he will rise. The son of man to be killed. I think there's three things here that Jesus alludes to in what he's saying. And the first is just this title that he has for himself, the son of man. You know, it's an allusion to this this divine figure in in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, this heavenly ruler that Daniel has a vision of, who God gives to him this everlasting kingdom where people from all tribes and nations and languages will, will serve him. It's the divine king of the universe. And Jesus calls himself this, the son of man, not just a generic anybody The Son of Man, the divine ruler of heaven. More than that, the the Son of Man has come to be delivered. To be delivered. God is handing him over. You know, in this moment, Jesus is identifying himself as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The one who would come, a king to come, who would be pierced on behalf of the people, who would die in their place, who would bear their iniquities. Isaiah 53, 6 says, The Lord has laid, literally that same word, delivered on him, the iniquity of us all. Again, in verse 12, Isaiah writes, Because he poured out, literally, delivered. His soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for transgressions. He has come to pay the price for our failings. But thirdly, the the Son of Man has come to be delivered. Where? Into the hands of men. And they, they will kill him. Whereas previously in chapter 8, it was the rulers of Israel who, who would reject him. This time, Jesus wants his disciples to know it's not just the rulers of Israel, but it's all of mankind. He'll be delivered into the hands of not just a few, into the hands of men. The Son of Man, Creator and King of all, delivered into the hands of man. And that's the great message of the cross. That's the great message of his mission that the king had come to give his life as a ransom. You know, for many people that I speak to, they look at world events like the things we've just been seeing on the news just the last couple of days, you know, in Nice with 84, at least 84 people killed in senseless terrorist attack and and the Orlando shooting some weeks ago and now the the, the attempted coup in, in Turkey with over 100 people killed. And to some people, God is distant and he doesn't care. But the message of the Bible is that every detail in this life is the handiwork of an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise God. And the message of the Bible is that He's not distant, but He's present, even in this moment. You see, in the Bible, the problem in the world is not that God is distant, not that God doesn't care. The problem is with us is that we don't want his rule and that we've replaced his rule with ourselves. God is our maker. We are his creations. God is the potter. We are the pot. God is the baker. We are the dough. God is the painter. We are the artwork. We are his creatures. He owes us nothing. He'd be justified in destroying us. And yet, our maker sends his son sends his son to rescue us, taking the punishment we deserve on that cross, dying the death that we should have died, that simply by putting our trust in him, simply by putting our faith and trust in him, we might be saved from his wrath. And that is what Jesus is predicting in this moment. He is predicting the purpose for which he had come. He is teaching his disciples. He has set his face to Jerusalem to hang on a cross, to hang in our place. Just as Jesus said, his mission was this in, in the very next chapter. He said, for the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus did not want people in his home province to know that he was there because his purpose is to teach in this moment. He wants to teach his disciples about his mission he wants to prepare them for his coming death and resurrection he wants to prepare and equip them to live as christians this is the great master come to serve at the cost of his own life the display of true greatness well what is the disciples response Do they fall down and and worship in response to hearing this mission? Do they they weep in in thanksgiving for what Christ has come to do? No, they don't. It brings us to our second point this morning, which is the blind disciples. Read with me verse 32. It says but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. See, the disciples are still blind. They still see in part. They understand he's the Messiah, but they don't understand his mission. You know, to us it's crystal clear what Jesus has come to do, but they're still blind. We've had our eyes open. We can see with hindsight they they haven't yet. And they're afraid to ask. Remember the rebuke in chapter 8, verse 33. And, and remember even just before that with the miracle of the loaves, Jesus gets stuck into them for just missing the point. And you can see these disciples, they're, they're scared to ask what on earth he is talking about. But things are about to get even worse. Let's read on, verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. They've been traveling by road through Galilee to Capernaum and you can imagine Jesus leading by the front and the disciples in a line following behind and they arrive at this house and it's possibly Peter's house, we're not told. And Jesus has been teaching about his mission, how he's come to die, to sacrifice himself in service and he asks himself, what are you discussing? And immediately they're embarrassed. They are deeply embarrassed. Why? Because the disciples are jostling for position. They are arguing about who is the greatest. And you can imagine it's possibly Peter, James, and John there in the inner circle in chapter 5 that had been taken exclusively with Jesus into to uh, raise Jairus' daughter. Uh, later on in chapter 9, uh, we see that he takes these three uh, up onto the mount at Hebron where Jesus transfigures and reveals his glory. And you can imagine them saying to the other disciples, Guys, we are the greatest, we are the chosen three. You are the lesser nine. And the disciples, the other disciples, saying, no, we're all part of it. We're the same team. We're one. We're together in this. You're not the greatest. You've got no idea what you're talking about. We're the greatest, you know? And Jesus, in a circle, are arguing and arguing and arguing. and, And Jesus has just been teaching about his humiliation, about his rejection, about how his sacrificial death on their behalf was to come. And these disciples are focused on personal gain. It seems outrageous, doesn't it? You know, in some sense, you know, greatness was a big deal in the first century, and Jesus' day position was very important. It was an honor-shame culture, slightly different from ours. People sat at certain positions around the table which would tell you their position. In the synagogue, you sat in certain seats which would say your position, rank and order was very important and the disciples are going to repeatedly argue over their rank. Again, in, in chapter 10, they're going to have the similar argument all over again. But I don't think we should be quick to laugh at the disciples because you see, desire for status and prestige... It's present in our culture as well. Firstly, we value status. We all find ways to elevate ourselves in the eyes of others. We, we want to look significant. I was thinking about that <laughs> this week, and uh, I have an embarrassing confession uh, to make. Uh, until recently, I was working at uh, St. Vincent's in uh, Darlinghurst, and there's a, a coffee place uh, I like to, to go to right near uh, the the hospital, and uh, uh, I I dress you know pretty well for for work uh, you know collared shirt and shoes and all that sort of stuff and and um, and anyway uh, there's a guy Carlo who's this Italian guy who who runs this little coffee shop and. Um, he uh, doesn't know my name and so he'll see me coming and uh, I remember the first time he did it, he'll say, ah, oh, hello, because uh, I'm familiar. Hey, doctor, how are you? And um, I kind of uh, just went along with it. And, um, uh, I thought, you know, it's awkward to correct him. I don't want his people around. So I'm just going to say nothing, you know. Um, and the confession is to, to this day, uh, Carlo still believes I'm, I'm a doctor. Um, you know, I like him, you know, thinking I'm someone special. Brendan Willis, you know, Dr. Willis, you know, I kind of like it. you know. Um, we, we all find ways to, to elevate our status in, in, in other people's eyes, you know. Here at Some Grace Church, I'm, a, I'm a, a, a pastoral intern, but the temptation is so easy just go, oh, no, no, just a pastor, full pastor, that's right. That's me, that's me experienced, oh, very experienced. Amen. Um, we, we, we want people to, to think more highly of us. I mean, I mean, have you ever thought about why we find it so hard to confess sin? Why is that? You know, wh- why, why, why do we find it easy to put our hands up for, for serving when there's praise, but slow when there's none? You know, so many people you know, I speak to will say, you know, oh, my gifting's in teaching or preaching compared with, Cleaning the tables or perseverance in prayer or encouragement or helps, which is really, uh, Paul's talking about helping the poor, or administration. You know, why is that? I, it's not because God's created a body which is out of whack, like with massive hands and tiny feet. You know, I, I think it's because, you know, with this role, you get pat on the back. People say, great job, fantastic. And, and, and all of us have a, have a part of it that we, we love it. We, we value status. We want to look good in the eyes of other people. Secondly, we value success. You know, we want to be part of things that the world says, that's significant, you know, that's, that's a fantastic cause, that's, that's going places. You know, have you ever thought about why we're so quick to celebrate Christian celebrities versus other people who have become Christians? Why is that? You know, we're quick to say, oh, have you heard? Bear Grylls. He's a Christian. Or Bono. Or Chuck Norris. You know, it's because we value success. And when successful people want to join our team, we love it. We think it's fantastic. It makes us look good. I mean, who wouldn't want to be on Chuck Norris' team? It's awesome. Why do we find ourselves drawn to churches and movements that are (laughs) successful? You know, churches that are quickly growing numerically, where there's lots of younger and trendier people, where evangelism seems to be more effective, where they're growing more rapidly, where they're planting more churches, you know, that, that vibrant inner city church plant. It's because we value success. We're, we're drawn to success. I mean, even, you know, as, as a part of the pastoral team of this church, you know, the temptation to, to, to boast about numbers to say, oh yeah, our church is... How many people are in your church? Oh, you know, 500,000 people in my church, you know. Don't know about your church, small little church. We value success. Here's a quote, I just think, sums it up so well by J.C. Riley. He says the following, he says, It is a dreadful fact, whether we like to allow it or not, that pride is one of the commonest sins which beset human nature. We are all born Pharisees. We all naturally think far better of ourselves than we ought. We all naturally imagine that we deserve something better than we have. It is an old sin. It began in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve thought they had not got everything that their merits deserved. It is a subtle sin. It rules and reigns in many a heart without being detected, and can even wear the garb of humility. It is a most soul-ruining sin. It prevents repentance, keeps men back from Christ, checks brotherly love, and nips in the bud spiritual desires. Let us watch against it and be on our guard. Of all garments, none is so graceful, none wears so well, and none is so rare as true humility just like the disciples we can find ourselves jostling for position we value success we want to be part of things the world says are significant it's because we struggle with pride and so we are just like the disciples blind And that is our second point, the blind disciples. You know, ironically, even though I struggle with this so much, I'd be losing my mind with these disciples if I was Jesus. I'd be just what are you guys on about? And yet Jesus sees a teaching moment. He sees a great teaching moment. And so that brings us to our third point, the great lesson. Jesus wants to teach these men. And so we read the following in verse 35. It says, and he sat down and called the 12. Notice he doesn't rebuke them for wanting to be great. What Jesus is about to do is actually to redefine for them what true greatness is. They've been looking in the wrong places for greatness. You know, if we want to grow in greatness as well, I just think we'd do well to pay attention to what Jesus says in this moment. He is addressing us. And Jesus is about to give us two key characteristics of greatness, characteristics that come from his very own example. And the first one is to serve the least. Read what Jesus says in verse 35 again. He says, And he sat down and he called to to him the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and a servant of all. You want to be great, says Jesus? You want to be first? Be last. You know that word for servant here, it's nothing fancy. Literally, the type of service is the word we get deacon from. Uh, It literally is kind of menial service, like waiting on tables. It's attending to the needs of others. And Jesus says, that's greatness. That is something truly great. This is just like Jesus. I mean, that verse we read before, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. This is following in His example. And yet, it's the opposite of what we think. You know, often, um, I don't know about you, you'll be at Westfield in the bathrooms, and you'll find... You know, those janitors that are cleaning the toilets and around, and they're often internationals. And um, and you just, I don't know about you, you, you don't look at these people in these roles and get, you know, oh, wow, man, I'm kind of jealous, bro, for that role. You know, janitor is not pick of the career options. You know, a dream job. I've never heard someone say is to be a rubbish collector for council. People, service isn't, isn't appealing. It's not attractive. Um, you know, I, I experienced this... Uh, You know, uh, when I was trying to go back into the workforce as a physio after being out of it for a long time, I ended up taking some work as a physio, uh, like a PT's aide, a physio's aide, a physio's assistant, which you basically go around and you clean up after a physio and arrange the rooms and stuff and take orders. And I was getting bossed around by this physio, and I hated it to bits. I hated it so much. I'm not some physio's aide. Like, I'm a proper full-blown physio, and I need to be, deserve to be treated as one, you know? We have this sense of entitlement often, don't we? We, we? we feel as though, well, I deserve this, and I deserve that, and I deserve this. You know, even when it comes to churches where we can be guilty of these things, I, mean, I used to do it as a younger guy, church shopping, where we go, well, you know, I, I should be a part of a church that you know, suits me has the things I want. And that's not saying that it's not good to look for things in churches, but when it becomes fundamentally about just meeting my needs, you know, where it needs to be preaching that suits me, and where my gifts are used and honored, where I have pastoral care to the degree I want, where there's evangelism options that I like and suit me, where the worship's kind of the style that I want, and that's all it's about. Versus service. This is the body of Christ. To serve the least... That is greatness, says Jesus. J.C. Ryle says this, and this this quote just cut me to the heart when I read it this week. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says. He says these words, speaking about what Jesus has said just now, these words are deeply instructive. They show us that the maxims of the world are directly contrary to the mind of Christ. The world's idea of greatness is to rule. But Christian greatness consists in serving. The world's ambition is to receive honor and attention. But the desire of the Christian should be to give rather than receive and to attend on others rather than be attended on himself. In short, hear this. The man who lays himself out most to serve his fellow men and to be useful in his day and generation is the greatest man in the eyes of christ isn 't that powerful isn 't that convicting? Hear that one more time. The man who lays himself out most to serve his fellow men and to be useful in his day and generation is the greatest man in the eyes of Christ That is both convicting and hope filled isn 't it it 's convicting because it just turns on its head the way we think so much about what is greatness, and yet it's hopeful because notice, gifting has nothing to do with it. Gifting is not related to greatness. Service is. Meeting the needs of others is. Following in the footsteps of Christ is. And to be honest with you, church, our church is filled with truly great people. It's just they're not in the places you might expect. They're on the sound desk. They're cleaning up when everyone's heading home. They're serving on youth on a Friday night. Who does that? Who gives up their Friday night to serve on youth? They're on kids' ministry right now in the baby crash. they They're meeting during the week to pray. They're the kind of people that would sacrifice their weekend to travel up the coast to serve City Light Church for their retreat, even though for many of these people didn't even have their own kids in kids' work. I mean, that is truly great. Who's thanking them for that? That is living to serve others. That is something truly great. Serving in such a way that the the only applause you're getting is from the Savior. That is truly great. I I just want to ask us a, a question that we can think about this morning. What is something truly great that you could do today? What's something truly great to serve where there's no praise except for in heaven, to, to drop someone home going out of your way, to volunteer for a task, to give a difficult word of truth in love, to run a small group or a missional community or to, to care for one of your neighbors? What's something truly great that you could do today? Well, true greatness is found in serving the least, but not just that, it's also found in welcoming the least as well. Read what Jesus says in, in verses 36 and 37. He says, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, for us, this passage can be a little bit confusing because kind of children in our culture are kind of cute. Adorable, innocent. But in Jesus' culture, where there's no uh, social welfare at all, children are dependent. They were burdensome. They were costly, most of all. They were the lowest in status. You now, it's probably what we're reading here is probably a play on words from Jesus, because in Aramaic, the word for child is also the word for servant. But what is he talking about? Is he just talking about welcoming people of low status? Just giving ourselves to the poor or something like that? Well, Notice what he says. Whoever welcomes a child in my name welcomes me and not just me welcomes God himself. It's close, There's a close association by, between what it means to welcome a child and welcoming God himself. I mean, where else in the Bible do we see Jesus associate himself so closely with people that to welcome them is to welcome him? And the answer is just over the page in, in chapter 10, verse 13. It writes um, in the context, uh, the disciples that people are bringing children to him that he can touch them and lay his hands on them. And, uh, and the people, the disciples are rebuking them. But read in, in chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus says this. It says, but when Jesus saw that they were rebuking these, these children, he was indignant and he said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That is really key to understanding what Jesus is talking about in our passage. You see, a child for Jesus here is a metaphor for someone who's humbly put their trust in Christ. A child, and Jesus will elsewhere refer to his disciples as his children, is someone who's just following Jesus. And Jesus says to receive one of the least of my children, the least of my lowly disciples, in my name, it's to receive me. Well, who are we welcoming? You know, my example in, in my life is that you know, I find it easiest to welcome my friends. Uh, those that I like. Those that like me and, and Shah, Those that are like us in age and stage. Those that are successful, the habit togethers those people that have got their lives and their issues sorted out, the wealthy. The question I want us to think about, again, is, Church, what would it look like to do something truly great? What would it look like to welcome one of the least? To welcome that difficult person, that person with social problems, that awkward person, that person who I find difficult. That lonely person, that needy person, that person who differs from me in age and stage, who has mental illness or an addiction issues or is of a different ethnicity. True greatness, church, is found in following his example, in serving the least and welcoming the least. In closing, church, we, we, we live in a world that, that that honors success and status and says that is greatness. And yet what we've seen this morning is a very different example. We've seen our great master teaching the disciples about his coming mission of self sacrifice. We've seen these blind disciples that cannot see they can't see what he's talking about. They're arguing and jostling for greatness, their own greatness. And yet Jesus gives us this great lesson. He pauses them to teach them a better way and shows us that true greatness is found in following his example, serving the least, welcoming the least. True greatness is found in the self-sacrificing example of Christ. Let's pray and ask the Lord for help in this area. Lord, we just want to come before your throne and we just want to give you thanks Thank you that we get to call you our king. Thank you that you then show us, weak people, how to truly be great, how to live in light of your example. Lord, I I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would help me to build our lives and make our lives all about serving others, loving others, serving even the least, not for praise from any other person, but from praise from you alone. Lord, I pray you'd help us to be a welcoming people, to grow in the way we welcome others into our homes and into our lives, welcoming not just those that are like us, but welcoming even the least, Lord. And the reason for this, Lord, is because that's the example you've shown to us. That you served us though you were the greatest. You served us the least. That you welcomed us though we rejected you. You welcomed us the least. Lord, help us to live in the truth and the life that is to be found in your great example. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.